Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and look at your word and see how you describe us and through this and, and just ask you to guide and lead us as we study this section of Song of Solomon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week we were talking about how God desires us and the picture of Jesus looking at his bride or Solomon looking at his bride. This particular chapter is very strong in its erotic <laughs> presentation of his bride and desires for his bride. So this is what we're at in this place. And then we're going to start with the groom speaking in, in chapter 7 and verse 1. How beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of your thighs are like jewels, the work of your hands, a cunning workman. The, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Your navel is like a round goblet which wants not liquor. Your belly is like a heap of wheat set among the lilies. Your two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Your neck is as the tower of ivy. Your eyes like the fish pools of Hesperon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head upon you is like Carmel, the hair of your head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. How fair and how pleasant you are, my love, for delights. This, your statue, is like the palm tree, stature, is like the palm tree, and your breast a cluster of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also your breast shall be the clusters of the vine, and the smell of your nose like apples, the roof of your mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us go up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourishes. Whither is the tender grapes appear and the pomegranates bud forth? There I will give you my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruit, new and old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved." All right. Remember, as we look at this, this is the story of Solomon's love for the Shulamite wife. And we look back, and at the time that he talked about it, he had uh, 80, 80 wives. So he's still pretty early in his, in his uh, relationships. And this is supposedly the one that he truly loves, or at least when he wrote the book, it was his current true love. And we have talked about how this is also a picture of Jesus with his bride, the church. All right. And it says, it starts out with, how beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. And he's really talking about her footsteps. He says, I, I like watching you, watching you walk. And, you know, Jesus is saying the same thing to us. He likes to see it when we get up and walk and do things for him. And this is where most Christians, or people who name Christ, they never get up and do things for him. And he's saying, I want to see you do it. I want to see you walk. And, and if we think about this, usually when, if we can think back to, especially our first really true love, and just seeing them made your heart melt. The way they walk, the way they talk, 
you were intoxicated by just what you saw. This is what he's picturing here in this. He's, you know, Solomon is here telling her, I like the way you walk, even though you're wearing your sandals, but I like the way that you walk. All right? Um, and then he says, your joint, the joints of your thighs are like jewels, the workmen of the hands of a cunning workman. Literally, when it says the joints, he's, it means the curves, <laughs> the curves of your thighs. Uh, he felt that she was beautiful. All right, and whatever they define beauty is, because some of we, some of the things as we look as they're defining beauty would not be what we would consider beautiful in today's world. Uh, and I think I've commented. We went to a museum one time, and they had this postcard. It was from the 30s or 40s, and it said the bathing beauties are coming, and the pictures on it were one-piece suits, and the and the women were very rotund by our definition. But I know that used to be considered beautiful. They weren't looking for somebody as skinny as a rail that, that had no meat on them. They were looking for somebody who had some curves and some things. And here he's saying, the curves of your thighs are beautiful, as if they were sculpted by some great worker. And when he's talking about thighs, he's literally talking. There's an overtone in here of being able to produce offspring. Okay, he is, this is a very, in the, in the Hebrew, this is a very suggestive section of scripture. God is wanting us to be fruitful. He is wanting us to reproduce other Christians, and this is what he's talking about. This is, he looks at he goes, I like to watch you walk, and you have the potential and the, abil and the ability to bring forth fruit. And if Christians are actually getting up off their butts and, and doing things, they're ministering. They're drawing people to Christ. And this is the thing that he wants us to do. He wants us up. He wants us. And Satan's job, job if he, once he loses us, he doesn't care if he's lost a Christian if all they do is sit in the pews. All right? If all, and he'd rather not have them in the church at all. But if all they're doing is sitting in the pews, he's going, okay, well, we've lost them, but they're not doing anything for God. The danger he has with them in the church is they might get motivated by some message that finally breaks into their heart. So he really doesn't want them in church, but then he'll try everything to distract them. And here he's saying, you're beautiful. I love to see you walk, and you're able to produce. Nice. Huh? Got nice hips. Nice hips. You know, whatever that meant in their, in, their, in their day. He's appreciating whatever she has to offer. What year is this? Oh, this is about uh, 1,000 BC. About 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Uh, but the definition of beauty has ebbed and flowed for, for years. What, what, is a, what is a beautiful man? What is a beautiful woman has, has ebbed and flowed between hyper skinny in our day and age to very heavy and what we would consider heavy, but it was called, you know, considered attractive. Uh, and especially in those days, you wanted somebody, some meat on your body was what you needed because when you went into famine, you didn't want the person to die on the first year of the famine. Uh, you, know, you don't have any fat on you at all. You're going you're gonna to be dead. <laughs> all right? And so for years it has been that beauty was defined as somebody that would have some bulk. Not a, 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 you know, you know, overly fat, but somebody who had meat on their body and could handle these things. And this is what he's describing here for the most part in these descriptions. Pleasantly plump. Pleasantly plump. 
He says you, huh? Healthy. Healthy, by our definition, most of, most of what we consider beautiful is not healthy in this day, or what most people consider beautiful. And I really don't think most of what is considered beautiful is even that attractive. You know, I don't want to see every rib, every rib on the person and, and see their bones you know, just barely covered with skin. That, to me, I worry about those people. You know, that, to me, isn't beauty. And yet, in our day and age, we're pushing this is beautiful. And I think that happens at the end of almost any kingdom when there's a lax attitude and, and luxury is what you're doing. You're no longer looking for, the, for that as your beauty. You're trying to reduce the fat. You're trying to say, well, see, I'm not, you know, not there. And that's happened many times over the centuries as well, that beauty has been redefined toward the end of a nation to be skinny as a rail. And it says, your navel is like a round goblet which wants not liquor. Your belly is like a heap of wheat set, upon, set about with lilies. Now, this navel literally is the belly button. And apparently, this individual had an inward facing belly button because he said it can be filled. It's like a cup. Okay, it's a cup that, and the picture that he uses is with liqueur means mixed wine. So this is what would be considered strong drink. So uh, he's, he's really appreciating it. And he says, your belly is like a heap of wheat. And this is why I say he's looking at somebody who's got pleasantly plump. You know, you're, in our day and age, if somebody has a little bit of a belly, they're not considered attractive. But he's saying, you know, I love this. This person's got a belly. <laughs> You know, I, I wondered when I first read, the, was she pregnant? But he, he just married her, so, and he's called her a virgin, so I don't believe that she's pregnant. She just has, she's, she's plump, and that's, by his definition, is beauty. And, you know, and God is really looking at us, and I've told you all, sometimes I think about this. What does our spiritual body look like? Is it somebody who's emaciated and starved because we never get into God's word, we never study? Or have we fed our spiritual body and it's plump and, and well-defined? Well and I think here, in this case, Jesus is saying, I'm looking for that person who has a spiritual body that is not emaciated, that has a little bit of size to it. And, you know, and I, and I have this weird picture in heaven of different people with different types of bodies depending on how well they fed it on earth. And it's just a weird picture I have, and I don't know if it's true or not, but, but I just have this picture, you know. We'll be, I just have this picture. We'll be able to tell how well somebody fed their body when we get to heaven. Uh, and here is pictures of it. He's pictures of somebody that has meat on their body, and he says, this is beautiful. And I really think that's what Jesus is looking for us. Are you able to produce? Are you able to bring others into Christ? Are you, are you out there actually walking for him? Are you out there feeding your body so that you're not emaciated and, and unhealthy? And too many times for us as humans, we focus so much on what we consider the real world, what we can see. And we put way too much emphasis on this world. You know, God, I've got to have the best job. I've got to have the nicest car. I've got to have a really nice house. And if I don't have all these things, I've failed. And God's saying, yeah, but if I had you over here, you'd be ministering to all these people, and you'd be able to communicate and reproduce. And sometimes when we get what we think we wanted, 
almost always when we get what we think we wanted, we find out there's no pleasure in it. You know, when I came out to Mojave County from back east, you know, I, I, made, I made lots of money. But it cost a lot of money to live. I came to Mojave County, made a lot less money, but was able to live on what God gave me, you know, had provided for me. You know, and one of my arguments with God when he told me to come out here is, how am I going to make money? You know, God, how am I going to make money? There, you know, there's, Mojave County is not really known for its computers, number one, and especially not for computer programmers. So he just took me out of the computer programming business. So we look at this and say, God, what is it you want me to do? I want to be where you want me to be. And many times it is to be where he wants us to be is a challenge for us. Because it's not usually where the flesh wants us to be. Now we may get rewarded, we might get rich. There are examples of people who have gotten rich and still honored God. They're all over the place. Uh, J.C. Penney, the, can't remember his name, it starts with a T, but the founder of Caterpillar. Uh, he, had, he honored God and gave 90, both of them gave 90% of what they made to God and kept 10%. And they still ended up millionaires. You know, does God call everybody to do that? No. All right? Uh, but are we walking in where he's asked us to be? You know, if you're not going to honor God with a little, he's not going to give you a lot. If you can be faithful with a little, he might give you a lot if you'll stay faithful. But I think God also knows that most people won't stay faithful if they were given a lot of stuff. Because I've seen it over and over where people get a lot of stuff and they're serving God. They're serving God all the time until they get their stuff. And then they walk away from God once they have their stuff because, well, well you know, I, I had to go to the beach house and then I had to go to the mountain, the, the mountain resort and, you know, and I've got my boat out there. I've got to use it once, a, you know, once in a while. And then you know, during, the, during the winter I had my, my uh, snowmobile and I you know, got to do this, got to do that. And before you know it, they've been so busy with the stuff they've been blessed with that they're no longer serving God. And I think many people don't get the stuff because God knows that they wouldn't continue serving him if they got the stuff. And that's hard. You know, I would love to have a boat, but I think in the back of my mind, when would I ever use the boat? You know, I like being on the water. I like being on the water. I enjoy water. Uh, but I look at it and go, all I'd have is an expense. And I'd be lucky because I'm not going to give up on church. I'm not going to give up on the Bible studies. I'd be lucky to use it once or twice a year. I go, it'd be better off to rent it. Yeah, build a boat. Yeah, yeah build a boat. Here's the flood. I'm going to build a York. <laughs> 120 years. <from> now, <laughs> <take the boat> <laughs> God promised He's not going to flood us again, so <laughs> we're okay. Verse three: Your breast are like two young rows that are twins. Now, that must be somebody with some pretty good size <laughs> breasts to be described as rows. Yeah, those are like deer, right? <laughs> yeah, they're deer. Uh, so, I mean, you get this picture of this person. You know, this is somebody who's pleasantly uh, plump and not, I don't believe obesely fat, but he's in, he, he's, his definition of beauty is definitely different what we would look as beautiful today. <laughs> a little, little on the smaller side. <laughs> a little bit on the smaller side, still pretty big. It's being a woman, the heavier you are, the bigger you are. 
<laughs> so then he describes in verse 4, your neck is as the, a tower of ivy. You know, ivy is pure, pure white, you, and, it's, and, you know, and he's saying a tower, which means she must have been very long-necked. And there is, even to this day, people who really have the longer neck, and people really take that as beautiful. And that's obvious that Solomon sees her as beautiful. Necklaces. We talked about the necklaces, and that could be, but that one she didn't wasn't described as as uh, ivy at that time. She was talked talked about encompassed with gold. So the necklace, the huge amounts of necklaces that are still worn in a lot of African African tribes in the Middle Eastern places, where they put those collars on that hold the neck up high and straight. And so he could be still looking at that aspect of her. Uh, ivy's a little different on it, but it is still precious and uh, but a tower she holds her head high uh, her neck is 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 from what he's saying very beautiful and there was an understanding that towers were beautiful in that day they were protective and remember we've talked about you had your city that was walled it would have towers on it for watchtowers and all over the surrounding countryside there would be fortifications and towers and you always kept track of where these fortifications were. Am I closer to get to the, the tower if, if danger came, or do I go make a run for this for the city? Now, the city was better because it had more people, it had more food, but these towers and fortifications would have one door that was smallish. There would be weapons in it, usually bows and arrows, and there would be food in them. So you would at least be able to hold out until the king could come send the army to rescue you. And so you always, so towers were very important to them. And so he could also be talking that your neck shows strength. Your neck is showing strength and power. And Ivy definitely would be a strong and powerful description of it. And she, and he's saying, you know, there's some pride in her. You know, her neck, her head's held high. Her neck is extended. She's not bowed, bowed over and stooped over. Uh, then he says, your eyes are like the fish pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathraim. And so this particular lakes of Heshbon, which was over by the Ammonite, Ammonite country over to the east side of, of uh, Israel, were, were well known for their clarity. They were very deep pools and they were crystal clear. If you've ever looked into a crystal clear lake or a crystal clear stream and it looks like you're that it's very shallow, and if you got into it, you find out that it's very deep. That's the type of pond he's talking about. And he says, your eyes are clear, and, you, and they have depth to them. Now, his picture of this person is, is a huge beauty, huge, beautiful person. Our eyes as Christians are supposed to be pure and singular. When we're filled with God's word and singular focus on him, not clouded over with all the sins and everything. And one of the things that happens, even in na our natural eyes, the sicker we get, the more f garbage we put in our food, our eyes start to show it. They start to cloud, cloud over. They start to get brown specks in them and everything. By the diseases in our body, our eyes will show that. If you look at children, they usually have very bright, clear eyes. And the older we get, and if we even look at some of our own pictures, Usually we'll see very bright blue, brown, green, whatever color eye you have, and then you can look at your eyes 
as you get older and you see the, the yellows and the browns in your eyes that have changed as we've lost our health. And there are people that actually map the eye and say, this is what's wrong with you when they see those specks. Uh, and he says, your eyes are crystal clear. They're beautiful. Now, again, the beauty that he sees in this, in her. Uh, remember in this last, uh, in two chapters ago, he talked about being dazzled by her look. He goes, you look at me and my heart starts to palpitate. You, dazzle, you look at me and I just am desiring you from the look. And so he's, you know, he's definitely been paying attention to her. You know, this is one where he can describe her. <laughs> I'm surprised he doesn't describe the color of her eyes and everything. You know, he is enamored by her and he knows her really well. And you might even hear somebody say, I know you so well that I could draw or paint you without even having you here because you've just spent that much time gazing at them. And I, and I think sometimes, do we gaze at Jesus like that? Do we know him so well that we actually know what he's going to do and how he's going to act. And I've said, you know, I understand when people used to wear those bracelets that said, uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I understood the purpose of it, but, you know, my hope in, is that people will know Jesus so well, they don't have to go back and think this. That I know God so well that I don't have to sit there and go, okay, I'm about to get hit by this car, what would Jesus do? <laughs> you know, this person's attacking me, what would Jesus do? Uh, by the time you've gone through the thought process, your, your, your uh, sin nature has already torn them apart and ripped them to shreds because they're attacking you while you're still thinking about what Jesus would do. All right? And I understand, believe me, I understand what they were trying to say and what they wanted to say. But what we have to do is be so close to Jesus that we do what he would do out of one of our early reactions. Again, I've always said, the flesh will always be the first reaction no matter what. The question is, how fast does God's reaction follow the flesh's? And if we're close to him, it might follow so fast that we don't even realize that we had a bad thought. It, we're acting on what he would do. The further away we are from him at that time, the longer that thought is going to be. And sometimes I can remember that it was two or three days later. Oh, uh... I shouldn't have done what I did. I should have done this. You know, it's bad enough when it's a couple hours later. <laughs> uh, but when we're walking close with him, it is great when that thought is so close to it that we don't even say, the, say what immediately pops to our mind. We say what he wants us to say. And that's a great place. And here he knows, this groom knows his bride, knows his bride well. Your nose is as the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Now, I don't really fully understand this one. Is he saying that the tower was so beautiful and her nose was beautiful, or is he saying you have a really long nose? I don't know what the t which it is, and I saw all kinds of different examples when I kind of looked other things up. I'm going to go with the ones that said that the tower was considered beautiful and fit the features, because a lot of towers were built into things to be gentle towers on them, uh, we've all seen some of the fairy book ones where towers are stuck everywhere and they look kind of ugly. A lot of times towers were built in and they were built in to accent the wall and not overpower the, overpower the building. And I think that's what he's saying. I think that's what he's saying is I've 
tried to look at. Your nose fits your face. It's accented very well. Gary? Yeah, well, this translation I'm using here says it's like the Tower of Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's, it's something that accents. It's yeah. accented the wall. It's not something that sticks out like a sore thumb. And, it, and we've all seen those pictures, you know, where towers everywhere, and it's like, eh, I'm not sure that those things really look good. So I, that, I don't think he's saying, well, your nose is really long. You've got an elephant's nose. You know, I don't think he's saying that. I think he's really saying it fits in. And, the to and it's a particular tower, the, t the Tower of Lebanon. So this one apparently is something that was well known, had some beauty on it. Otherwise, I don't think he would have used that, that description. And I think he's basically saying, your nose fits. Your nose is, I notice your nose, and it fits the rest of your face. Even today, over there, I think they call them minarets. Yeah, very nice designs. Yeah, they're designed to accent the building, accent the uh, thing. And I think that's what he's saying here. I don't think he's saying you have a really long nose, because uh, that doesn't fit in with the rest of what he's, what he's talking about. So I, because it says the Tower of Lebanon, I think that must have been well known for its beauty and its accenting the whatever building it was on or wall that it was on. And he's saying, you know, I'm going, I, this is the most beautiful thing I can think of, and your nose is in that, in that category. But remember, we talked about some really, you know, you, you look like a horse, you, you know, you're like the horse, which he, Solomon definitely loved horses. He had all kinds of horses. So in his case, it wasn't that big a, it wasn't an insult. He's going, when I look at you, I'm seeing like the most beautiful horse out, you know, horse out there. And, you know, she understood what he was meaning by it. Uh, we look at it and say, she looked like a horse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, not exactly the way we would, co you know, declare our, our love and our, of our, of our, love of life. Uh, by the way, you look like a horse. Yeah. Um, but so I think he's talking about a very beautiful tower and he says it's, you're, you're, you have the nose that is really bringing out the beauty. Your head is like Carmel. And again, this is a very beautiful hill. They looked at it with a hill, very lush. So he's again, he's saying, not that you have a huge head, but you have a head that is very beautiful. Your hair, the hair of your head, like purple, the king is held in the galleries. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Purple is royalty. So he's saying your hair is of royal quality. All right. I'm, I don't believe she had purple hair. Maybe they did tie her hair purple. I don't know. His head is like purple, and purple is the color of royalty. Because he, otherwise, he'd have said your hair is purple, not like purple. So I think he's saying you have very well-defined hair. It is very suited for you. And then it says, the king is held in the galleries, and galleries are the locks of her hair. Apparently, and this has been mentioned at other times, she had very curly hair that he's finding very attractive. And he says, you know, and he's captivated by this. He's captivated. So our picture here is that she is pleasantly plump, large breast, <laughs> somebody he thinks is going to be very per, uh, uh, good wife to bring children, uh, fairly large breast, very upright neck, very clear eyes, a distinguished looking nose with very curly hair that is luxurious because that would be, that would be royalty because the poor working people would have the oily hair that's all 
bedraggled because most of them did not take their baths more than once a year, if they, whether they needed it or not. Having her say, your hair is luxurious and looks good, that was royalty. Royalty cleaned, the, cleaned themselves up all the time. The royalty stood out. Remember when he talked about her teeth in the last chapter? He goes, you've got all of your teeth. There are none missing, and they're white. They look like the lambs that have come up out of, the, out of their bath. That was an unusual thing. And it wasn't until recently that we brushed our teeth every day and kept good, healthy teeth. To have a full set of teeth, even in the 1700s, 1800s, was a very unusual thing. Uh, your tooth got sore, you had the, denti you had the dentist, which are often the barber, pull it out with a pair of pliers. And you had lots of missing teeth most of the time. Uh, or you were in pain, one or the other. And so we see here his beauty that he sees her and he goes, I'm lost, I'm held captive by those curls that you have. And it's kind of an amazing thing. Oh, how fair and how pleasant you are, my love for delights. And he goes, oh, you're so pleasant, you're sweet. You, I love being around you. Oh, my love for delight. You know, and it's here again for luxury. He's, he's intoxicated by her beauty. And we talked this last chapter about how God desires us. And until I really started tearing this book apart to, to, to teach it, I never really contemplated that God desires us. He wants to be with us. He wants to see us. Uh, about a year ago, I heard a song entitled, Jesus, Get Your Bride, and it really talked about how Jesus is just waiting for the Father to say, okay, Jesus, go get your bride. And we've talked about this. In a Jewish wedding, in Jesus' day especially, they would get engaged. The groom would spend a year or more preparing his home and his business for receiving his bride. And the bride would be getting ready, getting her hope chest and her, her stuff together to go into that home. And then one day, <coughs> the fathers would say, okay, it's time for you to, you've got everything done, and go get her. And he'd take his wedding party over and then he'd kidnap his wife from her home and take her to, his, take him to their home and have a huge party for the, that would last seven days and then they would consummate their marriage. As we look at what's happening for us, what did Jesus say he went to do? I go to prepare a place for you. He's gone to prepare the home for his bride. And one day the father's gonna say, Jesus, go get that bride. Go get your bride, and that's what we call the rapture. He's going to take us away, and we will have a wedding feast in heaven while the world goes through seven years of hell. We'll be in heaven celebrating for seven years. The world will be going through seven years as close to hell as they're ever going to see on earth, and the trials that go on on earth, and then we come back with him to rule for a thousand years and then we rule through the new heaven and new earth. What a picture. What a picture that we have here. And, and he's saying, you are my love for delights, my luxury, my di my di you know, your, your daintiness. This is your stature, it is like a palm tree and your breast is clusters of grapes. So she stands tall, <laughs> she stands tall. And Verse 8, 
I said, I will go up, I will ascend to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof, and now also your breast shall be as a cluster of vine, and the smell of your nose like apples, the roof of your mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. We're not going to talk too much about this. This is very, very graphic. <laughs> All right? This is talking about the actual acts that he wants to do with his bride. <laughs> All right? We're not going to go into very much of it because it is, this is one of the reasons that for the Jewish customs, the young men did not even read this book because in the, in the Hebrew it is extremely erotic. And this is literally what he is talking about here. He is talking about climbing on and performing. And he's talking about her kisses <laughs> or, or what he's desiring. All right, and it could, a lot of people try to wash that down and say they're, they're talking about her speech. No, it's literally he's talking about her kisses and desiring her kisses. It's a very strong, powerful desire and it really does take us to, when we think about, when we're taking the whole of this, Jesus is desiring his bride. What that means, we don't know what it totally means. He dwells in us. He is with us in as an intimate relationship as we can. Adam and Eve were designed to be a picture of Jesus and his bride. That was the whole purpose of marriage, to show us how intimate a relationship God wants with us. Now, it's a spiritual intimacy more than physical with, with uh, Jesus because there's going to be a different body, but we don't know exactly what that intimacy will be like. But the thing about physical intimacy is it draws together deeper than we even ever really understand. The spirits are actually connected through the intimacy of physical intimacy, which is why our hookup society that we live in now is so bad because people have joined their souls together and ripped them apart, joined their souls together and ripped them apart, and they get to the place where they just feel little to nothing because of the damage done to their soul. When people get divorced and they tear their, they tear their lives apart, there's a ragged edge on that soul because the soul does not come apart easily once it's joined together. It's a ragged edge. And the thing I've noticed about people who are, are divorced are literally there's a hurt. Even if they feel that it was deserved and right and all of that, there's still a hurt and a raggedness about that separation. And they will not like it forever because it, is, it, it hurts. The soul has been ripped. And you get somebody with three or four divorces under their belt or three or four relationships under their belt where they have joined together and ripped it again, there gets to be a spot where you've ripped your soul so much that it's hard to be repaired without Christ. And this is why it is such a serious thing for adultery and fornication to be committed because of the relationships that are developed and the tightness of those relationships where the soul is literally joined together and then ripped, ripped apart. And women feel it more often than men. Women tend to get emotionally attached even before any physical attachment and many women have suffered because they've gotten so attached, and they, and they really have attached at a soul level and ripped, in, ripped it apart, even if they haven't had physical contact. 
And they've still, because that's how they were made, men, men desire to have the physical and that attaches them more. But we need to be very careful because here we're seeing again the picture of the bride and the groom coming together and saying, we have now connected, we are one. And this is the way God wants us to be. He wants us one with him. He comes in, he dwells with us. We put our, our whole life in him and he takes our spirit and he changes it to be one with him. And remember, we talked about this so often that when we become his child, we are in him and because we are in him, he changes us to become like him over time just because we're in him. And ours is the one case where we don't change him, he changes us. In our world, we don't want missionary dating and missionary marriages because they don't work. The, the bad usually corrupts the good. 99% of the time, the, the bad corrupt the good. When we come to Jesus, the good overwhelms the bad. That's the only relationship where that happens in, in, a, in a normal place. And so we look at this and he's saying all of these things that he's desiring from her. His desire is for her in its most intimate way that a human being can, can join with somebody. God is looking to be intimate with us in a way that God is intimate with. And we don't know what that intimacy is right now. And we don't know exactly what that intimacy is, but I do believe it will be the linking of the spirit and the soul level. Without the physical activity, but the picture here is what we understand as total intimacy. The, the whole relationship on there. What it will mean with God? Don't fully know. I do know that when I'm worshiping in him and feeling his presence, that there's an ecstasy that's in that, in that relationship when you're soul walking with him, you're, you're in the word of God, you're worshiping him, and there's a feeling of oneness with him that will be fulfilled later on when we get our glorified bodies. And those little glimpses of what it'll be like are a great excitement. I can't wait to win. You know, most people, I can't wait to get to heaven and see this, that, and the other thing. I can't wait to have that intimacy with God that never ends. What I've just seen glimpses of in this lifetime. When I get into worship and it's just like, okay, I'm in, God, I'm in God's presence for a short period of time. And it's like, wow, this is what heaven's going to be like. Getting into the word of God and studying and having him just join me and saying, wow, is this what heaven's going to be like? God, can I, can I have this all the time? You know, and in heaven we will. <laughs> on this world, I don't think we're going to, because if we were there, we probably wouldn't do much on this world if we were in that, in that spot. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be out witnessing to people and all of that if we were that close to him all the time. But this is that picture. He's using the deepest intimacy that we as human beings can understand and saying, this is what I want with you. And it won't be physical. I don't see it being physical be whatever the glorified body finds as, as intimate. Verse 10 says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. And again, we see this, his longings, his cravings. This is the bride talking. You know, I am my beloved. And remember last time we talked about it, at the very first time she said this in, in chapter 2, she said, I am my beloved's and he is mine. In last chapter, in this chapter, he is mine, is her top priority. And 
And really that is true. When we start out as Christians, we are selfishly saying, Jesus is mine. Okay, I'm getting all these blessings because he is mine. And as we mature, we start to realize I'm his. I'm to do what he wants. All right? And this is, she's moving on. She is moving on in the story to saying, I'm his. I'm his. He, and, I'm, and then it says, and I love this, his desire is toward me. You know, we're seeing this over and over toward the end of the book. Jesus desires us. And I really want to press home on this. We somehow think that we are not wanted by God, but obviously we are. He wants us. He desires us. He longs for us. I don't know why. I don't know how. You know, all I know is he created us, knowing we were going to sin, knowing that we were going to have to redeem us, and then wants us. <laughs> and I don't understand that at all, why God wants us. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me, because God doesn't need anything. God is complete in who he is. He didn't need anything, and yet he created us and wants us. I don't fully understand it. It's beyond what I can comprehend. It's not that he needed us. He didn't need worship. He didn't need fellowship because he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit were always together. They had perfect fellowship. They had perfect union. They had completeness. And then he creates man and says, by the way, we're going to include you in this, in this relationship, this perfect relationship. And to make you perfect, we're going to, we're going to redeem you and buy you back from the sin that you're going to fall into. It is mind-boggling. And it says, his desire is toward me. And then this, it ends this chapter with, Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourishes, whether the tender grape appears and the pomegranates bud forth. There I will give you my loves. And literally, she is now inviting the groom out to the real world. He's the prince. He's the, he's, the, he's the prince. He's the king. He lives in a palace. And if you've ever been around somebody who is important, they may go out to what's quote-unquote the real world, but they do not get to see the real world. Whenever we would get an important visitor in the, in the corporate world, somebody from headquarters, we were told, you're putting on a show. You know, I want your best workers, you're to clean the place up, you're to make sure your best workers are there and that everything goes good. And think about this. The president comes to town. What do they do? They rope off the streets, they block off the streets, they hardly have any interaction with the people, and who they do have plans and interaction with are especially picked out people. They do not just wander the street and talk to anybody. The king would have been in that same ballpark. He'd have a guard around him all the time so nobody could try to hurt him. He would not see the real world even when he rode through the streets. And it would be make way for the king. He did not have to fight his way down the busy street. Everybody would be moved out of the way before he came down the street. She's saying, come. Come, come see real life. Let's go look. Come with me and see life. We take Jesus with us everywhere we go in real life. Now, he actually has done it. He's, he came and lived as a man. 30, 34 years lived with, with mankind, died, died in our place. But we literally take him everywhere we go. 
Let's see if there's fruit. Let's see if things are growing. Let's see if there is a fruitful part out there. And then she goes, in the end of verse 12, there I will give you my loves. We love God in our day-to-day life. And this is very important for us. How often do I hear and see people who are Sunday morning Christians, you know, they come once a week and perform their duty to God. Now whether they're a Christian or not, I'm not going to judge that, but they come, all right, today's Sunday morning, it's time to go to church. God, I'm going to get fed, I'm going to sing some songs for you, and then I'm going home and I'll forget about you for the rest of the week. She's saying, come out, come out with me. You know, be where I am and be in fellowship. And you know, as God tells us to move and go about our stuff, he's really wanting us to seek to serve him. And I've always believed it's better to step out in faith to serve God than to wait around to be hit over the head with a ton of bricks to, on what to do. We need to go out and just walk with him. If it's not the right thing to do, he will get our attention and say, let's go someplace else. But too many people are waiting for you know, God to drop a you know, spiritual email on them saying, this is what you're supposed to do, get moving. God usually doesn't do that. And I've heard a lot of pastors talk about this. You know, you're looking for something to do? Go out and try a few things. Spend three, or three months, six months. You know, God, am I a Sunday school teacher? I've done it for six months. Nope, I'm not a Sunday school teacher. God, am I, am I supposed to be a pastor? You know, start teaching some Bible study. Start teaching. Well, nope, don't like, this, don't like this. Am I just supposed to be the groundskeeper? Start working on it. Do you like working on the grounds? Some people do, some people don't. It's definitely not my forte to go work on the grounds. Can I do it? Yeah, I can do it, and I hate every moment of it. Yes, I can sing, and I can praise God, and I'll enjoy it while I'm doing it, but I never look forward to it. I look forward to teaching God's word. I look forward to ministering to people. God has put me in that place, and I'm going, yes, this is where I have fellowship with God easily. And we have too many people that are afraid that if they stick their head up and try to do something for God, that God is standing up there ready to, to hammer them back down. I really picture that God is saying, oh, you stuck your head out here. Let me help you out of the hole. You know, I'm ready to help you. Let's go find something to do. Get you out of that hole. Get you out here serving me. And too many people are afraid. You know, okay, God, where, where are you? You know, you got that hammer out? You know, and we're playing whack a Christian. You know, that's not what he's trying to do. And I really do believe if we stuck our head out, he's going to grab hold of us and say, all right, here you are. Let's, 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 go find, let's, go, let's go show you what I want you to do. Let me give you the strength to do what you want because that's what I've seen. Even if you're doing the wrong thing, he's going to still say, all right, at least you got out of the hole. Now I can walk you to where I want you to be. I can show you what I want you to do, and you're walking with me. Most of us try to hide and not do anything. And there is maybe a time when we've been beat up and we're, and we're just trying to recover from a really bad time, but don't get stuck there. I had a time when God said, I just want you to relax. Then I got so used to relaxing when he finally said it's time to get back up and do something, I didn't want to get back up and do something. We need to be able to listen and be motivated. The mandrakes give a good smell and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. This is the bride talking, saying, mandrakes are an aphrodisiac (laughs) of their day. But she's saying, they give off a smell on our gates, 
are pleasant. There's fruits here. And then look at this, that I have laid up for you. Fruit of us, you know, fruit, fruit that we're presenting, our life presented to him. God, I am presenting you all that I have. I am ready to give. And God, I think, takes great pleasure when we give to him and not hoard it. And this is always the question, you know, when it's time for saving money for retirement. How much money is enough money for retirement? You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Am I hoarding at some point? I don't think I'll ever get to where I feel like I'm hoarding, but... There are people that say, well, I've got millions of dollars set up for retirement. And I'm just going to, I'm never going to use it because I'm afraid that I'll run out. Yeah. They've got a problem. Money has become their God. But there is a place where we say, okay, God, I have this reserve so that I don't have to depend on charity to, to live. But then God does, might be saying, but do you trust me? This is where we walk a very fine line as a Christian. How much is to trust in our money and how much is to trust in God? And that doesn't mean go out and give away everything. But we walk a very fine line. Am I trusting in my money? Am I trusting in my 401k? Am I trusting in my retirement accounts? I've got a problem. You know, I am absolutely sure that if, all, if, the, if the market totally folded and all my, all my minor investments that I have disappear, God is still going to take care of me and still going to monitor me. Now, I put, I put my 401k money and all that stuff away just so that I have something. But my hope isn't, okay, God, it's right there. Because if the economy falls, nothing, no amount of money is going to be enough to live. Because God is the one that will provide. And there's going to come an economic crash that will make us have to depend on God. It doesn't mean don't prepare. It just means my trust isn't in it. it it's just like, okay, God, I've got a nice car. Yeah. Very important for me, driving, driving 300 plus miles a week, you know, almost 500 miles a week, I have to have a halfway decent car. Uh, otherwise, I'd be broken down everywhere I went with, you know, with that many miles. All right? Now, if, uh, if this church was right downtown next to my house and, and I didn't have to travel all that, I wouldn't mind what car I had because I could walk if I had to. Uh, walking 500 miles a week is going to be rather tough. I'm where I'm at where God wants me to be right now. And this is what we need to be doing. God, what do you want? How am I working it? And am I where you want me to be? And be willing to make those changes if he says, make those changes. And this is the thing that we always look at. You know, would I love to just be a pastor again and not have a second job? Absolutely. But it's not right yet. God hasn't said get rid of the other job. If he does, I'd drop that other job in a heartbeat. I don't like working 80, you know, 60, 80 hours a week between two full-time jobs. But until God says this is what it's done, it's fine because I, I get to minister to people. I have all kinds of people to share with out there at the prison. I get to show God's love to them. I get to encourage them. I get to answer Bible questions. I get to do all kinds of things out there. So it's a great ministry that I wouldn't have if I was just a full-time pastor. Uh, I'd go out and I'd be around about and talk to people and do things and see things if I was just a full-time pastor. But right now, I live with what God has given me. I live in the world that he's given me. And I deal with what I have. You know, I think it would be wonderful to be back around town again, hanging, around, hanging out at the post office and walking around and meeting people again like I used to do. It was a lot of fun being able to be known by people. It's been a while. <laughs> and I kind of miss it. But it's going to be, what does God say to do? 
Are we ready to move when God says to move? Are we ready to do whatever he says to do? And this is important because if we're trusting in our stuff, we're trusting in some idol other than God, we're in trouble. And anything can be an idol. Anything that we put our trust in can be an idol. And, and then, again, I'm not saying everybody go out and sell their, get rid of their savings in their retirement accounts so you can trust in God. You can still trust in God and have your plans. Proverbs is full of go, put away, put away a little bit until, you know, for when you're, for when you're older. Put away, you know, put away things for the winter. Put away, you know, we're encouraged to plan for the future, but is our hope in those things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Our trust is in him, not our stuff, not our retirement accounts, not our savings accounts, you know, not other people. Our trust is in God. And this is what she's saying. I've laid up things and now they're all yours. They're all yours. What do you, what, what, what do you want us to do with this? Our relationship has to be that close to God. God, I don't, I don't trust anything that I have put away. I've got, I've got, my, I've got, I've got it there. It's there. I'm not going to be destitute, but God, you want me to give it away? You tell me, and it's gone. God, you want to take it away? Take it away. I, my trust is in you. And too many times when we have bad things seeming to happen to us, our immediate thing is to distrust God. God, how could you have let this happen to me? God, my life was really smooth until you knocked the, knocked the chair out from under me. Matter of fact, God, you didn't know knock the chair out from under me. You knocked the whole foundation out from under me. And God's going, your foundation wasn't on me right now. I wanted your foundation to be on me. Not, not whatever. And he'll knock the foundation out and say, are you trusting me? And if we are trusting him, we come back to him, he'll give us another foundation. It's him that's the primary foundation, but he'll allow all the rest to work out. We look at Job. Job lost everything, and God gave it back. He's going, God, are you, and Job, Job, do you trust me, or do you trust your stuff? Job, do you trust me, or are you leaning on other things. In Job's case, he leaned on God. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to bless it. Lord, help us to realize how much you desire us. Lord, that when we're your children, because we've accepted you as our Lord and Savior, that you desire us and that you want us. And Lord, help us to always understand that. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.